Welcome to Rethinking Politics, episode 21. Yes! So today we're going to be talking about immigration. It's something we mentioned when we first started talking about the election, about an issue that we hoped they'd bring up, and we said whether or not they bring it up, we're going to talk about it. Well, that time has come. We are going to talk about it, and we're excited. We're excited to talk about it. It's a very interesting discussion. It's a very complicated and simple at the same time discussion and and we've learned a fair bit as we've put down on paper all the ideas that we've had and thoughts that we've had we've had some interesting discussions about it and we're we're excited to to share those with with you guys today we are we're excited to be done with election things the election things are interesting for the time right they're gripping for the moment everyone was watching the election details and whatnot but it's time to move on. It's time to move on to more substantial things and to, to talk about things that will, where what you hear now may matter for the rest of your life, right? Where, where the ideas are important enough and, they are, and the principles are important enough that it can be useful for your thinking for the rest of your life, as opposed to just discussing political strategy and what the realities are on the ground and those kind of things. So it's, we're excited to get out of the, the weeds of politics and back into the sky back into the big ideas and the things that matter. Absolutely. So immigration is an interesting issue because it's not just people who are pro-immigration and people who are anti-immigration. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. You have people who are pro-immigration and you have people who are pro-legal immigration. You have people who are anti-immigration in general, but more often than not, you have people who are anti-illegal immigration, but who say they are pro-legal immigration. And so that can change the discussion because now we're talking about different kinds of immigration and the differences between those kinds. And of course, how that changes how you feel about it. Now, the, the issue, the issue that we want to address, first of all, is the fact that immigration law as it stands is rough to say the least. And let me give you let me give you an example of that. So green cards, everyone talks about green cards. And what a green card is is that it's basically a pass that allows you to live and work in the United States on a long-term or permanent basis. So it's not the same thing as citizenship, and it's not the same thing as a travel visa that says you can come to the United States for a matter of weeks, and then you have to leave. So the green card is is really the, the, the most viable option if you want to immigrate to the United States. What you need is a green card. So in 2018, the average wait time for a green card was five years and eight months. And that is split up between two different kinds of wait time. The first wait time is the actual paperwork processing, the bureaucracy aspect, which can take one to one and a half years on average just to process that application. The other part is because if your quota is full, then you cannot get accepted until everyone else who's in that category has been accepted. So so those those quotas can stop people from entering the country. Now here's what people don't fully understand about those quotas. They think it's because oh these people don't have a good reason to come into the country and so they're forced to wait. No, these quotas are for people in preference categories, which means people who who primarily have a family member in the United States who wants to sponsor them or an employer in the United States who wants to hire them and is therefore sponsoring them to come to the United States to work for that employer or to live with that family member. And then, of course, the third reason is those who are who are seeking asylum, which is obviously a little bit of a different story. Right. But those two primary categories are people who already have something basically 100% lined up for them in the United States. And those people are forced to wait five years and eight months on average. In fact, you have 28% of those people waited a decade or more for their green card. 
which is a crazy long time. And so, so what this paints is a picture of an immigration system where even if you have every, all your ducks lined up in a row, as far as entering the United States, having a game plan, having someone who's financially stable, ready to work with you. So you're not, you're not, you know, left to your own devices. You have to wait years and years to enter. And then on top of that, there's whole groups of people who don't have sponsors of any kind who aren't able to get into those preference categories and have very limited options about any legal path into the United States. So that's that's the current system. That's the current system we're talking about. So when people say, yeah, I'm, I'm all for immigration, but it needs to be legal, you have to understand that if you're talking about the legal system as it is, then in many ways you are anti-immigration because there aren't good <laughs> options legally right now. Yeah, yeah, you, it's a very small group, yeah. The United States takes in a lot of immigrants. Uh, depending on how you compare it with other countries, it may take in the most immigrants, depending on if you're using, you know, controlling for population and those kind of things. But in terms of the number of people who want to get in, it is a small fraction, and which makes the means that most people just simply are not getting in. Exactly, and so what we want to discuss is an alternative to this because right now it's very limited about who can enter the United States. And so one alternative to this is some form of more open immigration where more people are allowed to enter the United States legally. And so we want to discuss some of the pros and cons of that idea and then how we feel about it and go from there. Because the thing is, is that to put it in a nutshell, we are practical idealists, Dan and I. We have very strong principles that we believe in that matter a great deal to us and that we think are true principles that make a difference. But we also believe that those principles need to be applied in the real world and that we need to accept the real world as it is and work within that real world in order to affect change using those principles. And so as we discuss immigration, we want to do just that. We want to face the issues head on while also learning, while also applying the principles that can make a difference. So going back to our state of nature example, where in this case, Dan and I, and in fact, several others have created a small community where we are trading with each other, we're coexisting, and we've even chosen a sheriff who is helping protect us. And now let's speculate that there's another very similar community that's a fair ways away from our community. And that one day, one of those individuals in that community comes up to me and strikes up a deal where he's going to now work with me as I fish. We're going to fish together. He's going to, uh, compensate me for a lot of the tools and resources that I'm going to provide for him in order to help benefit his fishing. And he even strikes up a deal with another resident for a place where he can stay. And next thing you know, he's able to coexist in our little group, right? The question is, would it be just for our sheriff, who is simply an extension of us, someone that we've chosen to help protect us, to stop that individual from moving into our town? And using the principles that we established in our very first episode, the answer is clear. And the answer is that he doesn't have that authority. And the reason is that, first of all, the rights that we have as individuals and the right that we talked about in that first episode, the right to life, the right to self-protection, does not allow us to decide what other people do. It allows us to live and allows us to protect ourselves. And that's the extent of what it allows us to do. And secondly, the sheriff, who is simply an individual who's been granted some more responsibility by the rest of us, does not have any increased authority beyond the authority that we had. He does not have the right, as we talked about in that first episode, to decide who lives and who dies. He does not have the right to decide what's right and what's wrong. He simply has the same rights that we have 
and simply increase responsibility, which is why the sheriff does not have any moral right to stop that individual from coming and living in that town. In other words, there are two principles here that justify immigration on a moral level. And the first is what I would like to call the self-protection principle, which is the fact that we have a right to life and we have a right to protect that life. And that means more than just us being alive, but us being able to go out to pursue life to the fullest that we're able to, and that we're allowed to protect that. And the other principle is that government, simply by definition of being a government, does not have more rights than an individual does. It may have more responsibility, but all of the authority, all of the power that government rightly has, it derives from the people. And if you combine those two principles, the government, simply by organizing, cannot do more, which means that if someone wants to come into the country, they have every right to do so, assuming that everything they do within that country is with consenting individuals. If they want to come and work for a business who wants to employ them, if they want to come pay rent at an apartment who wants them to rent from them, then the government has has really no say on the issue. And that's the principle. Brad was using the language of rights to convey this idea. You could use other language. You could say, you could talk about moral authority and justice, which is ultimately what's driving this consideration of rights. You'd say, would it be just for, for them to do this, right? Is it, would it be more, would they have some uh, moral authority to, to do this, to forbid this person, and when, where would that come from? This is all the same idea, and the answer, as Brad said, is, is no. Obviously, and, and we fully understand, that the world is much more complicated than in that simple hypothetical scenario. You know, that this, that we understand the United States is not a small town that's occupied by me, Dan, and a handful of other individuals. <laughs> we understand that there's a a, you know, a penumbra of laws, regulations, um, government bodies, different cities, different climates that all have an effect on how the United States operates. We understand that. But it doesn't change the fact that the principle holds true even when applied to the United States. Within the United States, we travel between cities, we travel between states on a regular basis, and that does not interrupt how the United States operates. That doesn't disrupt things in a major way, right? But for some reason, but the argument is made that when you cross the national border, things change. If someone who lives in a Canadian town that borders on the Canadian-U.S. border, this hypothetical is based on real-world situations, where there are two towns on each side of the border. And so really what you have is one town divided between two countries with a border that runs between them. And if a Canadian wants to cross that border to go to the other side of the town and reside on that side, it becomes much more complicated legally than if I wanted to move from one city to another. But on a moral level, why is that individual doing something wrong? Because if the individual's not doing something wrong, why does the government have the right to stop them? And if the individual is doing something wrong, what exactly is he doing wrong? This year, Black Lives Matter has been a major issue. As we've seen throughout the year, and that started with the death of George Floyd. People watched the video of George Floyd being killed, and they said to themselves, and they said to others, and I said, where is the justice here? Where is the justice in what these instruments of authority, these police officers who are supposed to represent us, where is the justice that they're exercising here? Here's this individual who may or may not have broken the law. 
right? Because the allegation, the reason they were there is because there was the question of counterfeit bills. And we're not getting into the, into whether or not they were because the police, their job is to investigate broken laws because he very well may have broken the law. And if he broke the law, it still wouldn't have been right what they did, right? I think most people can agree on that. <laughs> right. If he had used counterfeit bills, that would not justify them killing him there in that parking lot. You can use that same principle with immigration. You have an, an illegal immigrant in the United States today who is working at a business who wants him there. And often the business knows he's illegal. You have him paying rent or living with someone who wants them wants him there. You have him purchasing groceries from a store who is more than happy to sell him his groceries. And then you have police showing up, dragging him out of his home, locking him up, and then deporting him. And so my question is, once again, where is the justice there? And even in that case, where, the, where, where he is breaking the law, it seems hard to find the justice. But if you take it one step further and say, where's the justice in stopping people from coming here legally? Because if they come here legally, there is no broken law. You know, then you have that same person doing the same thing. And by stopping them from doing that, where's our justice? Right. And when you say where's justice, I think where is the injustice that this person has committed, right? Because that's the exactly that's the Thank justice you, is is merely the the expression of of you have done wrong and therefore this. And and what is the thing that's done wrong? And if all you can point to is the law is broken then what is the law based on? Is it based on justice? Is it based on some kind of, of, of thing that we could say if someone violates that it's wrong and they deserve this or they, you know, some kind of, we went through, we did an episode on criminal justice where we talked about the reasons why you might punish someone for what they're doing or you might uh, redress them, have some harm done that needs to be addressed. And I'm, as Brad said, I'm not seeing the harm done here. Now, if he comes and does something else and robs somebody or kills somebody, then that's an entirely different question, right? But that's not even a question of immigration anymore. That's a question of crime and what do you do about it? Yeah. So the question of immigration, you, it can't just devolve to their legal ways and their illegal ways. We're, we're in considering the moral question here. We are weighing the law itself. We're not allowing the law to make that determination for us. Exactly. It would be like arguing that prohibition, you know, back in the 1920s has to stay into effect because it's already the law. And that's simply not the case. Laws can be changed. If, if prohibition is immoral, then we need to change the law. If the immigration laws as they stand are wrong then we can't simply argue that because they exist, we need to enforce them. We need to change the law. Right. And if so, so we're not saying that that laws should be thrown out. We're saying if the law is wrong, it's our responsibility to fix it, not just say, well, it's the law and move on. The more Brad and I have considered the question of the moral question of immigration, the more we've concluded, <laughs> the more sure we have become that there is no moral grounds for restricting somebody's movement from one place to another unless there is some kind of other crime, in which case it's not a question of immigration, it's a question of crime. As such, it seems that the only moral stance on this is, is one of open immigration, which is to say, you don't interfere with people's business if they want to move to some other place unless they've done something wrong. But there are many practical concerns that people have about why that, why a policy of immigration in the real world would cause a lot of problems. And sometimes those problems are such that you may have to change the policy. So the first issue is the concern about all of the government benefits that taxpayers pay for that we would then have to provide to immigrants. The number one that is mentioned is, of course, healthcare. You know, that there, there are lots of healthcare options that are either subsidized or free for those who are, who are in poverty and, and then also for the elderly. There are also welfare programs that 
are just straight up giving money to those who don't have enough, as well as free education provided to every child. And those are all areas where the U.S. could be paying for these immigrants. And so the argument is, is that we already have a, a bloated a bloated government spending problem. We already have a deficit. How could we afford to pay for all these new people when we can barely afford to pay for what we have now? And on top of that, the argument is that these immigrants didn't earn these benefits like United States citizens did. So here's, here's the practical response to that. First of all, many of these problems are a byproduct of so many immigrants in the United States being illegal. Because if, if you are not paying taxes, then you obviously are not contributing back to the system that is then going to support you. And so if we're opening immigration, allowing legal immigration, that taxation issue is not going to be an issue because every immigrant who comes to the United States will be paying taxes. Because the, the illegal immigrants now who aren't paying taxes aren't doing so because they love not paying taxes. They're doing so because that is, in many cases, the only avenue open to them. <laughs> right. Because just like illegal immigrants, any one of us could find a job where we got paid underneath the table and we could become tax evaders. And many people do on a regular basis, but the reason the vast majority of us don't is because it is very impractical. Trying to live a tax-evasive life is very hard. Watch many of the crime shows about these <laughs> criminals who are trying to launder their money because all they want to do with their criminal money is pay taxes on it so that they can operate within this system. You know what I mean? That's They pay people money to launder their money so that they can pay taxes on it. Yeah, I mean, it's... that's the world we live in because if you're not paying taxes on your money, then you have to hide that money or you face consequences. <laughs> and so, so it's actually, the incentives are weird, but that's the reality we live in. And so as soon as you allow immigrants the opportunity to pay taxes, they will. And that will, of course, affect this concern because you're going to have them paying into the system just like everybody else. Now, here's the second argument against that. If you look at immigrants to the United States, immigrants are not equal across the board. You know, we talked about bell curves before. There is a bell curve with immigrants. The vast majority of immigrants, both illegal and legal currently, are middle-aged. They are not very old or very young for the most part. They tend to be working age, and they tend to be coming here because they want to work, and because they want the American success story that everyone talks about. They want to have more than they had before. And so what that means is that because of that demographic difference, what we're going to get is people who are paying in versus people who are taking out. And I know that can be hard to believe, but let me give you an example. In the U.S., how it currently works, if you have a family of four, then each of those four individuals is going to have to be educated by the public education system. The two adults will obviously have been educated earlier, and then the two children will be educated currently. And the U.S. government, well, the U.S. government and state governments are paying for four educations in exchange for two current workers and two future workers, right? Now you have a family of four who migrate to the United States legally. And now what the United States has is they have two current workers and two future workers. In exchange, they only have to pay for two educations. And it's a weird way to think about it, but that's the reality, that it's not as expensive as people think it's going to be that more often than not, immigrants coming into the United States, instead of breaking these government spending programs, in many ways will actually support them because they'll be increasing tax revenue. And so it's, if anything, it, it, it may be beneficial, it may be slightly detrimental, most likely it'll come close to breaking even, which means that 
bringing immigrants in is simply going to keep things as they are in terms of these government spending programs. And that's what the data has shown, not just from legal immigrants, but even from illegal immigrants in the past. The second argument that we want to address is a big one that we hear all the time. It's about immigrants taking jobs, right? The immigrants are going to come, they're going to take the low paying jobs, they're going to compete. They're often going to be willing to take less pay to do certain jobs. As a result, they, they're coming and they're taking the jobs of Americans and we need to put Americans first, right? This is a country for Americans this is the way it's often, this is often discussed these days. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of the job discussion right now. As much as we'd love to. We would love to. The difficulty is it is nitty gritty and there are a lot of details to how the, the economy works. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of, of all of the details here, but I want to mention a few of them. First, to think of the number of jobs in the economy as a set figure for a set amount of people is already to fail at economics. It's to, it's to, to begin wrong. It's to start wrong. It's to start from a position where you're looking at the wrong things. It is not a zero sum game. And we've highlighted that fact over and over again. Uh, there's a difference between zero sum games and non-zero-sum games. This is not a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game in that a person who comes and works contributes the necessary labor to supply their own goods. It's a it, job creation provides the jobs provide the very wealth that they are then distributing. And so it's not like, it's not like they're coming, they're taking a piece of the wealth from everyone else. It's not like they're coming and they're taking a the one of the jobs from everyone else. If there are more workers, there can be more jobs. There can be more industries. And depending on you know where where these groups are and in, in, in terms of skills and things, you can have jobs that that begin to develop and industries that begin to develop in line with the the work workers that are available. Another principle that's related to this is the idea that wealth is not money, right? We're not paying out to these people. This is about what they create. It's uh it's about stuff. It's about uh it's also worth noting that, and it's also critically important if you're going to understand economics to realize that exchanges are one of the ways by which value is produced. And the more people you have that can exchange things, the more wealth you're going to have. By expanding markets, you get more wealth. By having expanding markets that are close to you, in this case, you know, people in the United States or people in your neighborhood, you will literally increase your wealth. You will have more stuff because there are more people, not as a product of anything you've done special. It's just, just the way economics works, which is to say that adding people to the American economy where they can take advantage of the productivity and the knowledge we have here is not just good for them. It's good for you. It's good for you. And if you question that, you are more than welcome to look back at the decades where we had very high immigration in the United States in the past and how the economy, rather than, you know, spiraling out of control and ending up in a bottomless pit, exploded because of that large increase in creation. Because you had people who were not working jobs as a standalone idea, a job as a handout, but, but individuals who were working jobs that were creating things. That work is about creating wealth, and by having more people creating wealth, more wealth is created. <laughs> more wealth is there to distribute. That's right, and it uh, and and the exchanges because you're exchanging for something you want, and they're exchanging for something they want. Both of you are better off in the exchange as long as it's a, a willing and free exchange. Um, related to this concept of jobs is is a number of other legal structures, things like the city zoning and federal regulation and state regulation, because of the ability of people to create businesses that can adapt to the to these jobs, right? Entrepreneurs to come and say, uh, there are a number of these people who are looking for a job with this kind of labor. What could I do that would be profitable for all of us and to then create something that can adapt to that? So the flexibility to create the necessary businesses and institutions to adapt to these jobs is a separate question that is worth considering. In a lot of places, we don't have that flexibility. I mean, a lot of people go to these sanctuary cities where the regulations are so high that they can't build new housing to match the population increases of their own population, let alone incoming populations. But those are, those are products of, of other bad systems rather than a fault of, of immigration itself. 
and laws that are laws and regulations that are easily changed and something that immigration would quickly create the incentives that would compel those governing <laughs> bodies to change it would. It would. they would you... change those regulations if immigration was open they would not sit on their thumbs they would they would change they would so often so often we have regulated people out of out of job opportunities and out of living conditions that they could afford for the time the temporary quarters that would be better than being on the street that they could afford are often illegal and those kind of zoning laws in cities are remarkably arrogant if i could put, put it that way uh to say that you can only live here if you can afford this mm -hmm. uh, when you can actually have a much wider uh, swath that, uh, that was that was able to adapt to people who were coming in who didn't have the means at the time and could then learn and develop the skills and go from there the next issue the next concern we'd like to talk about is the issue of crime the argument is is that when you allow immigrants in and that as we've allowed immigrants in in the past it allows for criminal elements and even potentially terrorists and that by allowing this large immigration it increases violent crime in the u.s this argument has been made in particular towards the legal immigrants who are currently here which of course then can be applied to the art the idea of increasing immigration going forward the answer to this claim is really rather simple. The data, because we have, we do have data because we have many immigrants here, the data simply does not support that. Even among illegal immigrants, not looking at just legal immigrants, but even looking at illegal immigrants, the data doesn't seem to support it. Now, we don't always have the best data. Many states do not track it. One of the issues is the, whether or not they're tracking their immigration status, their legal status when they get arrested and, and and as the crimes are prosecuted makes it difficult to get a complete picture. So we don't have a 100% accurate picture of what is going on. But there are states that do track it. Texas, for example, does track it and seems to indicate that among immigrants, crime is lower than among native residents, which is which is surprising because that's the opposite of what people claim. Now, is that accurate? We are not 100% sure, but if anything, the data seems to indicate that immigrants are, if anything, they're less likely to commit a crime. And even if that's untrue, there seems to be very little to no evidence that they're committing more crime than the native re residents. The, right. the data is simply not there. Right. Especially of the kind that, that, that scares people, right? People are worried that they're coming in and they're joining gangs or they're, they're committing violence and theft and all these things. There is no evidence that that's, that that's true. Uh, all the evidence points the other direction on those kind of violent crimes. As Brad said, we don't have perfect evidence of this. We, we could get better reporting in these things. Some of the states could track it, but, but states like Texas track it really well. And in Texas, of all places, it seems pretty clear that immigrants commit less crime. And of course, there are some people who who argue that if you include the fact that that they're that they're illegal, and so anytime they they falsify a record or get a job under false claims or or are by definition you know evading taxes or any other such technicality of the law, they're all criminals, and therefore their crime rate is crime rate is <laughs> is <high>. exponentially <laughs> higher than native residents. Right, I saw the one. The, I think the study I saw on that was saying it's like something like two hundred and fifty percent higher. That's obviously not the crimes people are concerned about. You don't. Yes, exactly. You don't stay and, awake at night in your bed worrying that your neighbor's filing a form improperly. Like that's not. And that's a terrible argument against legal immigration because legal immigration would not have any of those issues. You know, right, there is, right. you know, just identity legal. theft is a real issue and and the question of how much of it is from immigrants versus other other individuals is a real question, but legal immigration would solve the illegal immigrant issue. Yeah, any disproportionate uh effect of that you've got to think is caused by the fact because of their unique legal illegal status and as you said a lot of the time it's um, you mentioned it before, but in this case too, those kind of crimes are driven in part by a desire to pay taxes. 
so that they mm-hmm. can get the benefits, which is so uh, that which they is, can be a right, which is ironic. They can be a, f- a fake real citizen <laughs> that uh, that participates in the system. <laughs> Another important complaint against uh, against a a policy that would allow for a lot of immigration rapidly is that it would overwhelm the system. Right? If you if you had open immigration, if you said anyone who can who comes who wants to come can come, the idea is that the the city infrastructure and the not just the job economy, but other aspects would be overwhelmed. This is a statement I hear regularly, that you you can't have too much immigration, it will overwhelm the system. This is, to me, such a... This has been the oddest of the complaints in some ways, um, which is to say the one that I understand the least, because I'm, I'm always curious what system they're talking about specifically. Like, if there's a system that's going to collapse, which one and... And why? What's the specific system? I think this is a, by being such a vague fear, by being this, you know, it's just too many people and things won't work. I'm, I mean, the DMV doesn't work anyway. So <laughs> I'm not sure what adding a lot of new customers to the line would do. You know what I mean? Like, like the things that don't work aren't going to work worse. And the things that do work, I don't see how how this would affect them much at all. I mean, but I, were we worried about too much traffic on the roads? I don't, I don't want to straw man this argument. I'm sincerely searching for the, what is the system here that's at danger? And I think I can, I can offer, offer a little clarity because I understand the fear a little bit better because, you know, I, I spent a fair bit of time growing up in, in St. George, Utah, which is a relatively small community that's been growing on a regular basis over the last 30 years. I mean, it's it's grown, it's grown incredibly fast. Yeah. And many people there are very upset about it. And they say St. George is overcrowded. It can't support the population. And so you can see how that would be a real fear, saying, hey, the roads are crowded now. We increase the population. What's going to happen? And the honest answer is the same thing's going to happen as happens that as has happened in the last 30 years in St. George. A small town has become a medium town, has become a fairly large town. Roads have been expanded. New roads have been added. New businesses have popped up left and right to deal with the increased population. And now you can live in a city that has multiple Walmarts, that has a Costco. <laughs> and as it continues to grow... Yes, yes, there are going to be more roads, but there's also going to be more of everything else. And what you end up with is a large city, but it doesn't mean it can't grow. And if you, in fact, if you look back earlier in, a, in the United States history, the population exploded both through natural reproduction, but also in large part because of immigration and always the country adapted because that's what the United States has always done. You know, there there have been new cities that have popped up. Look at Phoenix, Arizona. Air conditioning was invented and what used to be nothing became a city of over 4 million people. If you look at the Phoenix area, I mean, it's massive. Phoenix area has Phoenix almost area the entire huge. population of the state of Utah in a desert that no one would ever want to step foot in up until air conditioning was invented. And that's just an example of how things have changed in ways people never would have predicted before. And and that's something that you'll see going forward. Now, to answer the concern that if we open borders, 300 million people are going to enter the United States and you won't be able to leave your house for fear of stepping over all the immigrants who are now here, the answer to that is very simple, and the answer is incentives. People are going to do what's best for them. So let's say that we open borders and every single person well, in Mexico— judge is best for them, this, the small caveat. Yeah, every, every single person in Mexico will pack up their bags and come to the United States. Even if that's true, they'll get here, and a, a decent chunk will find jobs, will find residences, and all the rest will say, what am I doing here? And head back home until there's a better opportunity. <laughs> right. If they're just sitting there with nothing to do and no, no place exactly. to stay people, or anything. People are going to try and do what's best for them. And that's something that you're going to see with immigration is there's going to be a curve. 
where the numbers will start out relatively slow and will gradually increase as more and more opportunities open up for those immigrants. And right. so, yes, you will see a large increase in population over time, but it's not going to be the mad rush that everyone thinks it will be because there's simply no reason for it. Right. People are not going to just sit in your front lawn waiting for opportunity. There's a fundamental difference between the way that immigrants behave and the way that refugees who are being pushed out of countries by the millions behave. Now, asylum seekers, it fits under the category broadly of asylum, right? This is a, that group in large numbers may be, you may have to have a different answer. But as far as immigrants go, Fred's absolutely right. They're responding to incentives. They come because there's money, because it's better. And if it weren't better, they wouldn't come. Obviously, they may be wrong, right? They might think it's better, come see that they're wrong. But these are people with some means, not a lot maybe, but with some means and with some ambition. And even if they find poor circumstances, they may find some way to, to work through that, you know, some way that they may create something. One of the things that I think could happen in, in a lot of cities would be where there were a lot of immigrants coming, if we had a more open immigration policy, would be, uh, you know, places that would offer people room and board in order to work and do certain mundane tasks, general, you know, general labor tasks, tasks that anyone could do. There, there's no reason that couldn't be a thing. It isn't generally a thing in America because of how wealthy we are. We're wealthy enough that you can have your own place. And that's a, that's a product of immense wealth. But for people who don't have a place, there might be a better alternative in the middle, right? And often the way we zone and regulate our cities is aiming at the wealth that we have. And as such, it doesn't always accommodate people who are coming from less and who would have to have time to work their way up to the wealth that we have. So, so the next the next issue or concern we want to address is is going to be difficult to address primarily because unlike some of these other issues we've talked about, it's much more vague. Doesn't mean the concern isn't there or the concern isn't real, but the less tangible something is, the, the harder it is to, to pinpoint exactly what's going on. And this is the issue of culture. The issue of there is a culture in the United States that is great, that makes America great. And that if you allow open immigration, by definition, those immigrants are going to bring their own culture. And that culture will change the United States from the inside out until it's no longer the United States. So that's, that's the concern. That's the fear. So there's, there's several different ways we can address this concern. The first way, as we're talking practicalities, is very simple is look at the data of immigrants who have come here the argument has been made that immigrants in the past 100 years ago would come to the united states and would assimilate and in the past 30 years immigrants come to the united states and refuse to assimilate and refuse to learn the language and just want to do their own thing the data does not show that in fact in terms of language learning it shows that immigrants in 2010 were, if anything, slightly more likely to be able to speak English versus immigrants who came here between 1900 and 1930. And on top of that, the data shows that immigrants who are coming here now, the younger generation, the, the younger people who come here, and then the second generation immigrants assimilates language at an incredibly high degree. If you come to the United States and you're under 18 or you're born in the United States to immigrant parents, the odds of you speaking English are incredibly high. By very high, we're talking almost 100%. The argument that, that they refuse to assimilate is not true. The argument is that they are assimilating, but that assimilating takes time. Learning a language takes time. Right, right. That doesn't mean that they are anti-America. The second thing we want to talk about related to culture is, is what we people mean by culture. I can't help but think that, that the most defining part of American culture is that it's made up of people who want to go out and do it, who want to go out and work, who want to go out and earn their way. 
and it's it's still the American dream to some degree, right? There's there may be modifications, but that's that's still a central piece, and it's still what sells people. It's still what brings people here, which is to say that one of the most American things that I can think of is an immigrant who showed up and wants to do that. In fact, if you were to say, who are the most ambitious and hardest working people? And you were to compare an immigrant population with a local population, you would find the immigrant population is far more likely to be working long hours and to be uh, to be doing the kind of things that you would associate with American culture. <laughs> and the reason for that is very simple. It's not just... We're not just taking a random person from a country. A person who's an immigrant has already self-selected to have mm -hmm. certain attributes that would allow them to then get here and make something of it, right? And, and I'm sure there are failure cases. There are people who get here and everything falls apart or, or it didn't work out the way intended, right? But by virtue of that self-selecting process, you are taking some of the cream of the crop. That's an inevitable effect of just the fact that immigrating it takes work. work and means yeah, yeah yeah which means that there's a number of there's a, a a large portion of the population in other countries who will never do it and so it's a it's a it self-selects in some ways for people who are willing to work because it requires it and obviously work and being willing to work in the american dream is just one part of american culture Right. But the thing is, is that there aren't many parts of American culture that are universal. If you look at me and and my culture and, and the music that I listen to, the food that I eat, the things that I'm interested in, <laughs> yeah. the 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 television yeah. that I that I consume, the books that I consume, almost every part of who I am and what I care about. And compare that with someone who lives in New York City, and you are going to find a lot of differences. And compare that with someone who lives in Florida. Compare that with someone who lives in North Dakota. And you are going to find very strong differences between all of these groups. And that's just fine. And you're going to have immigrants who are going to come in, and they're going to have very different food choices. They're going to have very different musical interests. They're going to have very different interests across the board. But what Dan is saying is that in terms of what makes America, America, none of those things are it. It's not music. It's not, it's not entertainment. It's not food. It's not even what you like to talk about. It's about the American dream. And that's something that I share with someone in New York and I share with someone in North Dakota that I share with a hardcore Republican and a hardcore Democrat that you can cut across all these different demographics and find. And it's something that you will find even stronger in those immigrant populations. And that's what matters. I wanted to make one more point on culture. I think the, the way that it's often framed, this fear that your culture will slip out from under you. There are times where there are good things that are an aspect of your culture, whether it be local or, or broad, and they can slip away from you because people, you know, people come in and they're, they're sold on other ideas and, and those things slip away and they're lost and it's, and, it, and that can be bad. I don't think all cultures are created equal. I don't think all ideas are created equal. There are good ideas and there are bad ideas and you should try and protect good, good traditions. But I think the way to do it is not through this passive forbidding of people that might change it. That's the sign of a dying culture. Yeah. You don't you don't protect the culture in your own home by forcing anyone who lives near you to have the same culture or by or rather by preventing people from moving near you who have a different culture. Yeah. Your culture has to spread. You which is to say the answer to your fears about culture changing to me seems very clear and it's that you need to go and invite those people over to your house right <laughs> it's that you and, need and to share your culture and with share them. your culture if if your ideas are good right if you if you believe something and it's true or it's accurate or it's or it's effective you can persuade people of that you could if if it, if it is good show people invite them 
assimilate them. Like we talk about assimilation as if it's their task to not do anything that displeases us. <laughs> what if what if you took them under your wing? What if you invited an immigrant family or something? You know, what if you what if you engaged these people and they saw what you had and it was good and so they wanted it? And that it's a I don't think you preserve what's good by protecting it from challenges. I think you preserve what's good by sharing it. And you preserve what good good ideas and good practices should be taught and shared. There's one aspect of politics, and it's related to culture, it's related to all of these. It's the political side of this, the political game of this that I think has a, that rears its ugly head in the background of all of this, which is the idea that if, if you allow people to come in who have different ideas, they can then impose those ideas on you by voting, right? Whereas, where this is not like a share your culture, protect your culture. This is a, I'm going to take my ideas and shove them down your throat because I have more votes than you. And that's what politics has become in too many cases. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's what can I get away with imposing on the people who disagree with it entirely. And, uh, and, and when everything is directed through politics, as it has been this year, and as it seems increasingly so, this is always going to be in the background of a discussion about immigration, which is to say, if we let people in, how are they going to vote? Will we still have a democracy? Will we still have these other things? This ties into the culture aspect because these people actually are assimilating. I don't think that's a rational fear. And as we talked about before, the data strongly indicates that they do assimilate. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to have the exact same ideas on policy that you have. But to be fair, that's true of 90% of the population <laughs> yeah. currently here because almost everyone disagrees with each other on some policy or another. Mm -hmm. It's not 50-50 split as people say that it is. Now, there are going to be some key issues that immigrants believe quite strongly on that you wouldn't expect. You would as A lot of people argue that immigrants are going to be 100% liberal. Because, and the, the simple reason is because historically conservatives have been anti-immigration. Number one, if conservatives are no longer anti-immigration, that's going to change. But number two, immigrants are not nearly so cut and dried as you may think. You know, even looking back at this last election, you have a large number of immigrants and you have a large number of Hispanics who supported Donald, Donald Trump. Somewhere around 30% of Hispanics voted for Donald Trump, yeah, which to me is crazy because yeah. Donald Trump has said thing about immigrants <laughs> and Hispanics that I, I don't understand. And yet they still voted for him because they have strong ideas about freedom and hard work that lines up really well with the conservative movement. Right. And so when people are afraid of immigrants coming in and throwing away the democracy, it doesn't make sense because immigrants are here for this democracy. That's why they came. Right. They picked because this America place. is the they land of opportunity. <laughs> they picked. They're not to be going here. to come for opportunity and then vote it out. Yeah, yeah. As a as a group, if you were to say, do, would they generally support the system? As in, just speaking in the most broad terms, right? Would they support things as they are, or would they want to radically change them? The immigrant group is going to support things as they are much more so than the natives are. The filtering process, right? The self-selecting process that, that leads to that is the fact that they chose to be here. Whereas people who grew up here are just here. You may like it or you yeah. may not. Mm -hmm. But people who chose to be here are going to like it more than people who just happen to be here. And that, then the evidence is very strong for that. <laughs> and the evidence is strong for that. The evidence is strong for that. Uh, talked about healthcare and other benefits from the government. The idea that they were getting things for free and they're coming to live off the system. That's not happening. It's not happening. Often the opposite is true. Often they're paying more into it because they're coming as adults and so they're not taking advantage of some of the early benefits. And, uh, and often they're, they're trying to pay taxes so they can be part of the system. The jobs concern. I think the jobs concern is not only incorrect, I think it's actually the opposite of the truth. I think immigration improves the economy in serious ways. I think it makes for more innovation and more jobs. And, and as such, People concerned for the economy, I think, should be pro-immigration. Crime. They commit fewer crimes. 
seems to be straight up. As far as the data can show, they commit fewer crimes, especially the kinds that matter, right? Uh, the kinds that we that we worry about. That we're afraid of. That we're afraid of. There's no sign of them overwhelming infrastructure and the system. I think the system can be very flexible. I think if there were even more immigration, uh, that would put pressure on people to change some of the city laws and some of the regulations and things, cut some red tape, much like we did with COVID-19, right? Hospitals are able to function in ways that they've never been allowed to function legally because it was necessary for them to do it, right? To address the emergency. And I think if you had large amounts of immigrants, you'd see a similar level of adaptation. And once that adaptation happens, it does not go back. Once they realize this is fine, they never replace those things. And the culture, the culture one was more complicated. They are assimilating. They are, they are pro-America in the simplest sense, which leaves one final practical consideration, which is what can be done politically. What is the Overton window? What could we pass theoretically with some work, you know, maybe not today, but in the near future, what should be a, what would be a reasonable goal uh, for the law? What we would propose is that you Replace the green card system with something much simpler that allows anyone who wants to come live and work in the U.S. to do so, period. If you want to come and you want to work, not as a citizen, not as a citizen, but if you want to come and you want to work, you can do so legally. And you'd make it easy. You would reduce the fees to the point to where it's just the paperwork or processing fees or whatever you want to call them. Not instead of having it cost thousands of dollars in many years of time, it would take moments in a few dollars. And you wouldn't have quotas for different countries. Anyone who wants to would be able to. And that would allow the exact kind of person we want to be here to be here. The kind of person who wants to come and work, wants to come and, and participate in the economic side. And we can leave concerns of the of the voting and of the political aspects and those things on the side, right? We can, we can set those aside because this is not citizenship. But rather, and, and you could if you wanted to, you know, we could de- debate a path to citizenship for people through this, right? Down that the came, road. That comes later, years later. But even if there wasn't that, this would be so much better. And here's the kicker in terms of the Overton window. A lot of people think that there's something like this right now. They think that if people want to come and work in the United States legally, they can. And so by proposing this, by by creating such a system, we would be simply making that a reality, which is why it would garner a lot of support and a lot of fears would be assuaged by the fact that we are not making them citizens. We're not giving them everything that a citizen has, but we are allowing them to come and live and work, which is what they want. Right. You could even say that you will come and you will pay a limited tax and you will get none of the benefits, right? They could be- For a certain amount of time For a certain amount of time. You could make all kinds of compromises to to some of these other practical concerns. And still make a huge change. It would still change. Yeah. In so many different ways. It would still change so much for so many people. It's an interesting discussion here because not only would making a change like this be the absolute moral right thing to do, and not only would it be a huge opportunity for any of those who do want to immigrate here and work here, but it would be a huge boon for us, for all of the natives here already. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. It's not just a matter of right and wrong, but in terms of practical considerations, especially proposing something like this, something simple, something that that does allow for some compromises to assuage some of those concerns, would be life-changing not just for them, but for us. It really would. And as we talk more about economics In this podcast, I think that will become even more clear. But as we've even talked about it before, about these principles of production, the principles of trade and of growth, show that by allowing these changes, by changing a little bit of the regulation that, as Dan said, would come almost inevitably because of immigration, would greatly expand the United States economy and allow for more wealth and prosperity for everyone, both immigrants and otherwise. Part of the reason the immigration issue has been so difficult is because there is a lot of 
misinformation and a lot of lack of information that obfuscates the issue, that makes it much more complicated than it needs to be. And when I first said we were going to talk about immigration, that's what I said. It's at the same time complicated and simple. (laughs) It's complicated because we've made it complicated and it doesn't have to be. It can be much, it can be incredibly simple. It can be incredibly effective. Obviously, not everything will be perfect. You know, you know, for example, we talked about crime. Immigrants will come in and some of them will commit crime, just like some people here commit crime. And issues will need to be dealt with, but it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And it doesn't mean that the benefits are going to far outweigh the costs. This is a topic that I am, I personally care a lot about. I've tried very hard to be as passionless as I can be in this discussion. Because it actually, it strikes me as a way to do a lot of good that helps everybody. That is poorly understood and, and poorly discussed because we almost always discuss policy through the lens of the two parties. And the two parties don't see a way, they don't see a path to win this discussion. So they only talk about it around the edges. There are so many people whose lives would be better off from this, who, if they could get a green card in a day, it would completely change their life. And it would change their life for, in all of the best ways. And it would change the lives of them and their descendants if they could just get here. And the sad, the sad way this tale is told is that if they come it will be at our expense. That there's a trade-off here that's negative for us, even though it's good for them. And so we're trying to balance the interests of Americans against the interests of foreigners who want to immigrate. That tale is entirely false. It's entirely false. It's good for them, and it's good for us. If that's true, just, just... Let that sink in for a second. Entertain the idea that that could be true. If that's true, we have screwed up. Because we've been depriving not only them, but ourselves. <laughs> right. We've been hurting years. both. But we could be doing a great good that we have not been doing and would have cost us nothing. It would have benefited us. And sure, there will be some negative trade-offs. You know, there will be a few things. There will be isolated incidents and other things. This is something that should have been rethought a long time ago. And because of various mistaken economic theories and and ways of viewing us versus them and things, it's become rather confused. And because of the political necessities and the fact that the political parties couldn't get a win out of it, no matter what they did, so instead they they discuss legal versus pro-immigration versus pro-just legal immigration, which is not even a, I mean, that's not even a starting point for this conversation, right? That's a, that's a dodge. Mm -hmm. It's a way to avoid the conversation. Absolutely. We've said a lot of, of strong things today. And as Dan said, we both feel pretty strongly about this. And and a lot of you may disagree with us even after listening to all of our arguments, and that's just fine. But as Dan said, entertain the thought, entertain the possibility that there may be more to this than what's often talked about. And because there is there is some powerful truths operating here. And there's some incredible potential for, as Dan said, very positive change. And that's what everyone wants is some positive change is something that not one party, but both parties could get behind that everyone could get behind and, and see something really good happen. And that's what we would like to see happen. And that's what we think that you would like to see happen is something good. So let's make it happen. There is one negative trade-off here, which is that the countries would be losing these people. The places that are being left by the kind of person who would do that, those countries are going to suffer in their absence to a degree. As they should. Until they start doing the things that make people want to go there, right? Mm -hmm. It's It's a form of international competition that should be allowed to take its course. (laughs) Which will actually encourage those countries to change. Right. It would put pressure on a lot of places that have been corrupt for a long time, that people have wanted to get out of for a long time. 
and it would give them incentives to change, give them more incentives to change. It's a, it's a, it's a pain they should be feeling as good people who can flee. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you tune in next week. We are going to be talking about, about some more economic principles and how to apply them today, and we think it'll be incredibly beneficial. So, And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening.